Welcome to the teaching and preaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.secondbaptist-mtv.com or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. Well, hello, church family. Hope that you're doing well and uh, finding God's grace in the middle of these really strange days that we're living in. I wish we could all be together in this room, but uh, that we can't. Uh, we're thankful that we still have an opportunity to, to at least be able to hear the word opened and to enjoy um, connecting with each other online and in other ways. So I hope you're blessed. hope you're doing well. And I want to invite you today to open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 15. That's what we're going to be looking at. And as you're getting your Bible out and opened and turned to 1 Samuel 15, I'm going to tell you a story. It's a personal story, not a particularly easy personal story to tell you. It's a, a, a story from my college days. I, uh, a lot of you know I grew up here in Mount Vernon. But uh, went off to college in 1991 down in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, to Southeast Missouri State University. And I was pretty ho-hum about my faith when I went off to college. But in that first year of university studies, God really captured my heart. He did a new work in me that changed the whole direction of my life. And I really began to take off uh, growing in my faith, growing in love for the Bible, growing in a love for Christian community and learning how to pray really for the first time. So it was a time, that freshman year was a time of, of a lot of growth for me. Uh, enter sophomore year of college, and I don't know where this came from. I don't understand it, but, but by the time I was 19, 20 years old, I was already worrying about whether I would be able to get married someday or not. <laughs> I, uh, I had a fear that arose out of, out of the unbelief of my heart. Even though I was growing in lots of ways, there was a there was an area of my heart that was not surrendered to the Lord. And I had this fear that if I didn't find the girl that I was going to marry pretty quickly, before long I was going to be through college, and then, and then what? Then you entered the big, the big wide world where how would you find a wife at that point? And so in my sophomore year of college, with this fear looming in my heart, I began dating a girl. And we dated for quite a long time. And after, I don't know, a year or so of dating, we became engaged and uh, were engaged to be married. And there was about a year from the time we got engaged until the planned wedding date. And uh, this ought to be the first hint to anybody. Uh, that was the most miserable year of my life. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I went from, from uh, unsure to fearful to miserable, and even so much so that I had professors in college who didn't even know the Lord, who were worried about me and what was going on with me. And uh, at the end of, of, of a period of time, I ended up breaking off the engagement, and um, that was the end of that. But, but the reason I tell that story is because from the very beginning, even before I began dating that young lady, who was a wonderful young lady, by the way, um, I knew in my heart of hearts that to begin dating her would be to disobey the voice of the Lord. I, I knew it wasn't really what God wanted for me to, to be in a relationship with this young lady. 
and I went ahead anyway and, and did not listen to and obey the voice of the Lord. And, and that, that story is a segue to what we're going to talk about today from the life of, of King Saul. So before we read the passage, though, in, in 1, Corinthians, I'm sorry, 1 Samuel 15, before we read it, just a quick summary of where we're at in the Bible. I don't know if you're like me, but I know that a, a lot of points in my life, I, when, I, when someone refers to something in the Old Testament, I have to kind of sort through where exactly does that fit in the timeline and, and, the, and the characters. And so we are, uh, in 1 Samuel, we are through the era of Moses leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. Uh, Joshua brings them into the land that God had promised. After Joshua's death, it's the period of the judges, which was a terrible time where people were doing whatever they wanted, whatever was right in their own eyes. Uh, at the end of the period of the judges, God raised up the prophet Samuel, who, who was uh, a student, a disciple of Eli, the, the priest. God raises up Samuel, and, uh, and it's during Samuel's time that these events that we're going to, to talk about uh, begin to transpire. Uh, Samuel is the one that anoints Saul. Saul of uh, Benjamin, to be the first king of Israel. The, the book of 1 Samuel is the one book of the Bible with a significant amount of material about, the, about King Saul. He's introduced to us in chapter 9, and already by chapter 31, he's dead. He killed himself before the Philistines could get to him in a battle. He was anointed king, Saul was, by a broken-hearted prophet, Samuel. So why? What, what was it that broke Samuel's heart and led to Saul's uh, anointing as king? Well, chapter 8 tells us. In chapter 8, the people of Israel demand that they have a king like the other nations around them have. Samuel says, why? Yahweh, the Lord, he's our king. Why do we need a human king when we have the Lord as our king? But the people reject that word from, from uh, Samuel, and God says, Samuel, it's okay. Give them what they want they're going to have to live with the consequences of their demand for a human king. And they did. But Saul did have some, some military victories. He was a better warrior than he was a ruler, and he had some military victories. And yet, he still was rejected by God from being king. Uh, that's especially the section we're going to look at today in chapters 13 through 15. And so it raises the question, why? What was it about Saul that had him, the first king of Israel, rejected so quickly after he had been anointed king. So we're going to read the entire chapter of 1 Samuel 15. It's a lot of verses, and then I'll make some comments uh, on, on parts of it. So 1 Samuel 15, 1 down to 35. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came, out of, came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, 
which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. Well, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought the king, I'm sorry, I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, and the best, things, best of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And Samuel then said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. Saul then said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go away. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And then he said, Saul, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of the people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. 
And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death has passed. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So there's a lot there. We're going to look at this chapter, chapter 15, under three headings. And here they are if you want to write them down. Number one, a regretful God who delights. A regretful God who delights. Second heading is an impulsive king who cowers. An impulsive king who cowers. And the third heading we'll look at is a sincere obedience that pleases. A sincere obedience that pleases. So first, about a regretful God who delights. The most important question that you can ask yourself when you study any passage of the Bible is, what does this passage teach me about God? What does this passage teach me about God? Well, this one teaches us some things that frankly are uncomfortable and maybe even confusing about God. First, how about this idea of regret? What does it mean that God regretted? What does it not mean? How can God even regret something? Well, first look at verses 28 and 29 in chapter 15. Uh, there, the text itself shows us what, what we don't mean when we say God regret, regretted. Look at verse 28 and 29 again. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and given it to your neighbor better than you. And also, Samuel says, The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. So, what does it mean? Well, it seems here to mean there's a sense that God doesn't change his mind or change his plan. He doesn't make up things as he goes. And so Samuel's saying, God's not going to change now what he's determined. He's determined to remove the kingdom from you and give it to a better man, and he's not going to change his mind now and, and, and make up something mid-sentence, as it were, uh, instead of removing the kingdom from you. So God's not going to change his mind or, or make up a new plan as he goes. But... In verse 10, and again in verse 35, it says, The word of the Lord came to Samuel, God speaking here, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And then again in verse 35, The Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So you say, well, on the one hand, God doesn't regret On the other hand, it says twice in this chapter he does regret that he made Saul king. So what's that about? Well, it's the same word, by the way. And what we should be understanding, I think, from verse 10 and verse 35, is the Lord regrets in the sense of being sorrowful about the way Saul turned out. He's sorrowful. He's sad that Saul turned out this way. It's regret in that sense, not regret in the sense of, oh my goodness, what have I done? Now I need to find another way. So what do you think about that? God was sorrowful 
over Saul. God was sad about Saul. How can that be? Well, if it seems like, well, maybe it's something that happened with God and Saul and it's a one-time deal, don't forget that in the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, it says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. It's the same idea. Don't grieve. Don't bring sorrow upon the Holy Spirit of God. That would be like what Saul did by bringing regret or sorrow to God for the way he turned out. So you and I can also grieve God. You and I can also, in a sense, cause God sorrow or sadness or regret. But the Lord not only experiences sorrow, he also experiences delight. If you flip verse 22 around, look at verse 22 for a second, the beginning there. If you flip the question, the beginning of the question around, the question says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? If you flip that question around and make it a statement, the first few words go like this. The Lord has great delight in. The Lord has great delight in. What do you think about that? What do you think about a God who takes great delight in things? We know we're supposed to delight in God, right? Psalm, Psalm 1, uh, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And Psalm 37 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. So we understand we're supposed to delight in God, but, but God delights too? Well, what does God delight in, you're asking? Well, first of all, he delights in his son. This is from Isaiah chapter 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Or you could go to Matthew chapter 3 verse 17 where the voice comes out of heaven saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, the one in whom I delight. So God delights in his son supremely and eternally. He also delights in his created works. You remember uh, in Genesis chapter 1, the Lord creates, he looks, and he sees that it's good, and even very good by the end of the chapter. Psalm 104 verse 31 says, Let the glory of the Lord endure forever. Let the Lord be glad in his works. So you see there that God delights in his works. God also delights in his people, especially as his people delight in them. So Psalm 149, verse 4. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the afflicted ones with salvation. The Lord takes pleasure in his people. And then another category in the word that tells us the kinds of things that God delights in is that God delights in those who fear him, those who are just, those who are faithfully obedient to him, And that's especially what today's passage is about. God delights in our obedience. I wonder, is it possible that some of us have taken the Bible's teaching on God's transcendence, his his set-apartness, his greatness, his otherness, and we've added to that Bible, the Bible's true and faithful teaching on that, we've added to our own warped sense of what that must mean about God's emotions. Like, 
If God is high and exalted and lifted up and transcendent and other and far above, holy, 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 then he can't, he can't possibly experience emotion in relation to his creatures, can he? I wonder if some of us have, either intentionally or not, have gotten to that place in our understanding of, of who God is. It really is just a, it's just a version of deism, really, that idea. Kind of, God wound up the clock of the universe and let it unravel or, or let, it, let it unfold is one version of deism. This would be a kind of modified deism. God wound up the universe, he, he rules over it as it unfolds, but he doesn't have much personal involvement in it. Well, I hope that's not true of us, but I think it's a question worth, worth asking because of the strengths uh, in the Bible that we tend to emphasize here in our church. Or another question, is it possible that we emphasize the truth, and it is true, Romans 8.8, 8, that in the flesh or outside of Christ, we can do nothing to please God? We emphasize that, that really fundamental truth. We can't work our way to God by trying to do good works. In the flesh, outside of Christ, you can do nothing to please God. But do we emphasize that to the neglect of the reality that in Christ we can please God and we're commanded to please God, in fact, as those who are walking in Christ? May we not fail to emphasize the reality that in Christ we have both the opportunity and the command to live in a way that brings God delight, that brings Him pleasure. We can only know God truly insofar as we know him according to what he's revealed about himself. He has revealed himself as a being who experiences both sorrow at our rebellion and delight in our obedience. So ask yourself, do I know God in these ways? Do I consider these realities about God as I relate to him in my, in my Christian life? Do I consider the reality that God experiences in relation to us sorrow and delight? Well, from a regretful God who experiences delight or who delights to an impulsive king who cowers. So second, second topic now, an impulsive king who cowers. Though we're only introduced to Saul in chapter 9, already by chapter 13 he's been rejected as king. Chapter 13, just a quick uh, look here at chapters 13 and 14. In chapter 13, Saul is being pressed in battle. He had a lot of battles in his reign. Samuel is delayed in coming, which was an important... Uh, Samuel's uh, voice as the, as the spokesman for God was really important to Saul. But Samuel's delayed in coming, and so Saul gets worried. He's going to lose his soldiers. And so what does he do? He grasps for control. And he says, I'm going to perform the sacrifice myself. So read in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, read verses 12 and 13 with me, if you would. This is uh, Saul describing what he did to Samuel after Samuel arrived. I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. So grasping for control in order to get the outcome that he wanted from that battle. And then if you flip over to chapter 14, 
Again, Saul is in battle. And this time, he's, he's, so, uh, he's so desiring to make sure, so desiring to control the outcome of the battle, he tells all of his soldiers, nobody eats until I've defeated my enemies today. Okay, So there's no breaks here. We're in battle. We're going hard until the victory is, is secured. Nobody eats. He took a vow. I'll kill whoever eats. Impulsive. And what he didn't know is his son, his own son, Jonathan, was out in battle. He didn't get that message. And Jonathan came across some honey, looked pretty good in the midst of battle, took some honey, and then they said, No, you ate, and your father just said he's going to kill whoever eats. So Saul, in his rash, impulsive foolishness, makes a decision that could have cost his own son his life. Now, there was a way out of it. We're going to read, look in verse uh, 27 of chapter 14. Verse 27. Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. And then Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. And he was right. Saul had troubled the land. Well, the people ended up ransoming Jonathan back from death from his own father's hand because of this foolish and rash oath that Saul took. So you see it in 13, and God says, that's it. You see it in 14. Then we come over to chapter 15, and here Saul, by his own admission, he says in verse 24, he feared the people and obeyed their voice. Instead of totally destroying the Amalekites like God had commanded, he did not obey God's voice. He instead obeyed the voice of the people and preserved the king and the best of the animals. Saul was a king who alternated between angry, impulsive, foolish action to exert control on the one hand and weak cowardly, people-pleasing inaction to abdicate his responsibilities on the other. The whole pattern of his life and his reign as king was that he rejected God's word for the people's word and he rejected God's way for his own way. He showed himself to be an unworthy king or one who was unworthy of being king and he showed the need for a better king. Someone who, as Samuel said in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. The Lord, he said, God has taken the kingdom from you, Saul, and the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. So we need a better king, someone who will be after God's own heart, and Samuel tells Saul, God's, God's done with you. He's got a better man a man after his own heart. Well, the, the, the point of this, this passage of Scripture is not to teach us, hey, don't be like Saul. That's not the point. But there are definitely things to learn from his life about how we relate to God. Third heading, third topic, is a sincere obedience that pleases, that makes happy, a sincere obedience that pleases. We said earlier that God delights in things. And in this passage, he makes clear 
that one of those things he delights in is obedience. So you say, well, what kind of obedience? What does that obedience look like? Well, God delights in an obedience that springs from faith. It arises from the soul. It's heartfelt. It's the kind that wants to please God from within. Not an, not an external um, Get all, get, get all the things right that you're supposed to do to look a certain way, but a heartfelt, sincere, when nobody's looking but, God, but only God kind of, kind of obedience. That's what God's after. That's what he's, he's looking for. Saul's approach, by contrast, it lacked sincerity. Saul was not sincere in his half-obedience. And it was, it was laced with a kind of a I-know-better presumption. In fact, the word presumption is used there in verse 23 when when Samuel is describing what God sees in, in Saul's act of sparing Agag and the best of the animals. He says, rebellion is as the sin of divination. Boy, you can't get any worse than divination, right? Well, rebellion is that. It's, just, it's the same. And presumption is like iniquity and idolatry. So presumption is what Saul was guilty of in part here. I know better than God how to do this. So I'm going to do it my way. It was also Saul's disobedience or broken, bad obedience here. It was also a negotiated obedience. What do I mean by that? Saul said essentially, God, I'm willing to go this far in in obeying you, but only as long as I get to call the shots later on. I'm willing to kill all the worthless stuff and a bunch of the people, destroy a lot of that stuff. but, But when it gets to a point where I think I know better, then I need, I need you to work out a deal with me here, Lord. That's, that's the essence of what Saul did in sparing Agag. And in fact, in the earlier instances of, of disobedience as well. And then we could say too that Saul's obedience was a compromised obedience. Compromised. He was only willing to obey so long as it didn't get him in trouble with the people. So, I'm going hard after God. I'm going to obey the Lord. I'm going to do what he tells me. Unless... It gets me in trouble with the people. And at that point, forget it. I'm I'm out. Even after being confronted by Samuel, Saul is thinking more about being honored before the elders and the people of Israel than he is about receiving honor from God. The honor that God would give him for his obedience had had he been obedient. Look in verse 30. Samuel has just said, look, the Lord's made up his mind. You're done. There's no more kingship for you. And in verse 30, you get a kind of apology, a kind of repentance from Saul, but it's not genuine, and you can see why. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Oh, there, there you go. He's admitting it, right? I have sinned. Yet, honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. The first thing out of his mouth after I'm sorry is, what I really care about is the people still giving me the thumbs up for what kind of a ruler I am. And so you see that his obedience, if it can be called that, was, was compromised. Well, what did Saul, if we wrap it up, what did Saul's disobedience look like? He only partially did what God commanded regarding the Amalekites. He chose the voice of the people over the voice of God. And then he substituted, and then he substituted a sacrifice in the place of obedience. So he, 
he's, he's, he's got these animals that they saved from the Amalekites, and he thinks he's going to do God a favor by performing a sacrifice, or at least he says he's, he's, he's wanting to do this, perform a sacrifice. He's, he's substituting obedience with a religious act. And you and I might think, well, that's ridiculous. Why did he think that he could get away with that? That's so silly to think that he could not do what God commanded clearly and then, and then quick cover that up by, by performing some religious act. What, is, is God going to be fooled by this? It seems silly, doesn't it? Unless we stop and think a little bit about maybe some of the things that we are tempted to do. And I just thought of a few examples. I don't know if these will connect for any of you or not, but have you ever prayed extra long in order to make up for neglecting time with God all week? Yeah, you had a bad week. You, you, you acted as though there was no God all week, doing things your own way. And then you, you come to, it's time to pray, and you think, I'm going to pray extra long today to try to make up for that. Or, have you ever attended church on a Sunday morning, specifically in an effort to erase what your eye was looking at on Saturday night? Have you ever given an, an extra big offering at church because you feel badly that you wasted your money on a new comfort item that you knew you didn't need and shouldn't have purchased? Or how about maybe have you ever paid a compliment to someone precisely because you're ashamed that just last week you were gossiping about that same person? All of these examples, and, and we could give lots, lots more, I know, but all these examples are an effort to substitute obedience with a, with a religious act to try to cover up for, to make up for, to compensate for the disobedience that we were guilty of. I hope that makes sense, and I hope that you, you'll consider your own uh, life and your own soul and your own relationship with the Lord and, and ask yourself the question, Lord, have I, have I acted in a way like Saul? Because God had something really clear to say. He said, I don't have as much delight in, in religious acts when they're absent the heart of obedience toward me. Well, we're wrapping up here. And in conclusion, I wanted to say, first of all, that the people, by rejecting God as their king, and wanting to be like the other nations around them. They got their king. They got King Saul. But in Saul, they, ha- they received a, a terribly poor substitute for having Yahweh, the Lord, as their king. Still, in his mercy, God didn't wipe him out, but he rejected Saul. And like verse uh, 14 of chapter 13 says, he sought out a man after his own heart. And we know we're going to meet him soon. That's King David. We meet him in chapter 16, in fact, the very next chapter. Unlike Saul, David acted with restraint. He twice resisted the really easy opportunity he had to kill King Saul. And David acted with courage. You remember the story of Goliath and how uh, with, with Israelite soldiers trembling in their boots, he went out and said, I'm going to kill that man in the name of the Lord our God. He's he's going to give the victory. He ignored the fear and courageously went out to battle. Well, so we got in David a better man than Saul and one who was after a man after God's own heart. And yet, David certainly had his flaws, didn't he? 
including some really glaring ones that exacted a very high cost on him, both personally and nationally, on the people of Israel. And that leaves us wondering, doesn't it? It leaves us wondering, will there ever come a righteous king who will please the Lord by listening and obeying? Where is he? What will happen? When will he come? A thousand years and a whole lot of God's mercy passes by, and still, no king. And then, in the, in the most stunning mercy of all, the Lord, who had been rejected as king so many times by his people, he comes again, as it were, to reign over his people and in their midst. There, in Nazareth of Galilee, he unrolls the scroll of the prophet Isaiah to chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me as king. There he is. The king has come. Finally, the king has come. The king in David's line. David's son has arrived, the true king. And this king, unlike all the kings before him, he only speaks what he hears the Father saying. John 12, 49. He only does what he sees the Father doing. John 5, 19. He's perfectly obedient, and he is the Son in whom the Father delights. Well, in him, in Christ Jesus, the King, we have a whole lot of of gifts, but there's two beautiful gifts of mercy that I want to focus on right now that come to us. First, the forgiveness and the cleansing for our own Saul-like rebellion and presumption and self-sufficiency. We're not so different from Saul, are we? But in Jesus, there is forgiveness and there is cleansing from our sin. There is right standing because of what he's accomplished for us on the cross. So there's, there's forgiveness and cleansing. And secondly, in Jesus, the new king, the great and eternal king, we get a new heart in which that king's spirit lives to produce a desire and a power a longing and a spiritual ability to live obediently to the Lord. Because Christ both makes us acceptable to God and then changes us from the inside out, we can live in a way that pleases God. We can live in a way that pleases God. We can delight the heart of God by sincere, heartfelt obedience. And it's the cross where we're both forgiven of our disobedience and we're empowered for obedience. So as I wrap up to both any unbelievers who are watching and to the church, the message is the same as it is every week. Look to Christ. Look to the cross. Look to what he's accomplished for us, both to cleanse and forgive and, 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 and enable us to have right standing before God and to put within us a new heart, the, the heart of stone removed, the heart of flesh put within us where his spirit dwells, to, to perform the, the inner change, the, the power to transform us from who we were to who we're becoming and will be, and look to that Christ who will enable us to live in a way that pleases the Father in heartfelt obedience. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the lessons that we can learn from 
the life of King Saul and Samuel here in, in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Thank you for revealing truths about yourself that we wouldn't otherwise know. Lord, we hear you. You delight more in obedience, in listening to your voice and obeying than you do in performing religious acts in order to try to make up for disobedience. Oh God, seal that in our souls. May we be people who are increasingly in the inner person, in the inner workings of our hearts, are, are living for an audience of one, you, and we want to please you. We want to live obediently to you, whatever it costs us or whatever other people think about it. God, perform that work in us, your people, who are living under the reign gladly of King Jesus, who both bought for us access and knowing you, access to your throne and knowing you, and he also bought for us the new heart in the new covenant so that we can respond to you in obedience in our day-to-day life. Would you, would you grow us, every one of us, grow us in having an ear to hear your voice and to obey your voice uh, as we together uh, grow as a body in that same way. A corporate listening, a corporate obedience that makes you smile with gladness. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.secondbaptist-mtv.com or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.